Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In April 2006, the Institute held a two-day symposium about copyright and intellectual property titled Comedies of Fair Use. One of the panels was a series of presentations and responses about fair use and documentary film. It was moderated by James Boyle, professor of law and co-founder of the Center for the Study of the Public Domain at Duke Law School. The first speaker was Amy Sewell, a filmmaker whose 2005 documentary, Mad Hot Ballroom, looks at the lives of 11-year-old New York City public school kids as they prepare for a citywide ballroom dance competition. Charles Sims then responded to Amy Sewell's presentation. Sims is a copyright and First Amendment expert at the law firm of Proskauer Rose. Pat Aufteheide spoke about her research on fair use and played a clip of a documentary she produced on the topic. She is co-author of Reclaiming Fair Use, How to Put Balance Back in Copyright, and author of Documentary, A Very Short Introduction, and of Best Practices in Fair Use, From Theory to Project. She is University Professor of Communication Studies at American University in Washington, D.C., where she founded the school's Center for Media and Social Impact. Hugh Hansen commented on the presentations. He teaches copyright and trademark law at Fordham University School of Law. The final comments are by Alex Kaczynski, who at the time was a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. We're now going to turn to the, specifically to the world of film. We're going to start with Amy Sewell. I know a lot of you have probably seen her debut film, hard to believe it's a debut, Mad Hot Ballroom. And let me turn it over to Amy. Hi, thank you for having me. I don't know how many of you were able to see Mad Hot Ballroom. I'll talk through a couple examples. But first, just with regard to the law, my issues are specifically with music clearing in most cases. I followed every rule. I went by the book. I was a very diligent filmmaker. We have over 700 release forms from all the kids in every competition, even if they weren't featured in the movie, location release forms, et cetera, et cetera. I am insulted, I guess, in a way that as a filmmaker, when I go out to shoot, I have to be on the lookout for Frito-Lay trucks and for music that might pop up or something that would interfere with my art. So I am a huge advocate of pushing the limits of fair use for documentarians. When I made Mad Hot Ballroom, we went through this with clearing. I originally started off clearing all the music myself and continued to do that. It was a nightmare. I didn't know what I was really getting myself into, which I always think is the way to approach things. When we finish the film, I'm going to give you five examples of things that we really had to think about. One is uh, when the little boy from Bensonhurst, Michael, is walking down the street with his mother. Her cell phone rings. It is the tune from the Rocky movie, Gonna Fly Now. Bill Conti is one of the composers on it. It was six seconds of a cell phone tune, and the Music publisher, EMI, wanted $10,000 for those six seconds. That wasn't going to fall in line with my most favored nation on the other classics, including Frank Sinatra and Peggy Lee. I didn't feel like six seconds of a cell phone tune was equal to a minute and 22 seconds of Frank Sinatra, the way you look tonight. I fought and fought and fought and got it down to 5,000 and fought some more and got it down to 2,500. Sprint very happily gave it to me for free on the other end of it as they own the recording. We had to talk about this. I wanted it in there. It was representative of Michael and his mother both being Italian, coming from an Italian neighborhood. It was funny. It's my $2,500 laugh. Every time I watch the movie, I laugh really hard. (laughs) So that was one we kept in. 
In Washington Heights, when the girls go on the shopping trip, they go into a store in the background is music playing on a loop or whatever. It was all Spanish music. I probably wouldn't have been able to define it if I tried. It played very quietly in the background. We kept that in. It was eventually passed with our E&O insurance. I still sit on pins and needles to this day to see what's going to come out of the woodwork, if it's fair use or not, etc. I was upset about that. To ask the store owner to turn off the radio, I feel is interfering with my right as a journalist, where my medium happens to be film at this point, not writing. There was another scene where one of the little uh, basement boys, Ronnie, belts out three words, everybody dance now, after he had talked about how the stomp was his favorite ballroom dance. That's called a visual vocal cue, and Warner Chapel was the lead publisher on that. There were three attached to it. They also wanted $10,000. I refused to pay it. I think I got him down to five, and they said that they had been very good to me with all the other songs they weren't going to budge. I didn't want to fight them on that. We all agreed as a filmmaking team that, you know, we could pull it out and it really wouldn't make a difference. PS 112, the school in Bensonhurst, we show a very short clip of them playing a song that is completely unrecognizable and undefinable, and I challenge anyone in this room <laughs> to tell me the name of that song. Well, the lawsuit that did pop up, or it's pending right now, or they're trying to sue, is uh, somebody in San, San Diego says that that is their song. <laughs> to me, it sounds like jingle bells, but we've just gone quiet to see what they want. They want $20,000, and we've said no, and I've dared them to come after me because I will go to the courtroom steps and make a fuss about this. The last thing I just want to say as an example is overall in this particular film, source music, it was source music. This amazing organization, nonprofit, American Ballroom Theater, goes into public schools and they teach these kids how to ballroom dance. They put the music in the boom box. They press the button. We film. Well, because I was afraid of getting sued, we actually pre-cleared or got quotes on about 60 songs from which they could select. Again, is that altering the documentary? I don't know, but that's what we had to do. And every time they pushed a button, at least I knew that we were allowed to have that music, not knowing how much it was really going to cost me in the end because I didn't know how many seconds we were going to have of any of it, so we just filmed when they played. There was one song in particular that was in negotiation for a very long time. It was Hit the Road, Jack, which Ray Charles owns. His lawyer, after many, many phone calls, told me that he didn't care if I was the president of the United States and have, had a half a million dollars, he wasn't going to give me that song. It was the only time I cried in the making of this movie. I wanted that song. I couldn't get it. During filming, they accidentally pushed the button, and I went screaming out like a crazy woman, ah, Ted, you know, stop it, stop it. And I don't think that's very becoming of a producer to do while they're filming. So, you know, source material, is it fair use? Is it for educational purposes? Is there a higher moral ground here that I could have stood on? Maybe. I would have had to probably fight it. The music industry is huge. They have deep pockets. Documentarians don't. Obviously, there are court cases uh, that continue to create precedent, and documentarians can only hope that it ends up in their favor. I raised two questions just to end my presentation, and I got this from, this is a beginning filmmaker's book, and there are many others by amazing uh, lawyers who write about copyright and clearance. This is Donaldson's book. As you can see, it's well used. But my two questions are, when you move things or change reality, your doc ceases to become a doc. This is something the lawyer tells you you shouldn't do. And so go with me on this. It makes it a little bit of a catch-22 situation that if your doc is no longer a doc, 
then you do have to clear everything and you don't get the special rates for documentarians, which are a little bit cheaper than feature films. So you're really walking a fine line there. And then I kind of want to know why large corporations and music companies in many cases will pay or offer incentives for large Hollywood studio movies to place their product or use their music. They'll pay them. But in the case of a journalist using a camera, we're expected to clear this music sometimes for a lot of money. I don't get it. I don't think it's fair. And therefore, personally, I've become an advocate of fair use for documentarians. I'm going to push it. I'm going to fight it and make a stink every chance I can. End note. The music in our budget falls into between 1% and 10% of the total budget of the movie. Ours came in at over 50%. My movie cost me $200,000 to make. The music cost me $200,000 too. Thank you. I'm going to turn it over now to uh, Charles Sims, who we saw in the last panel, who works at Proskauer Rose and is also who used to work for the ACLU and who does uh, represents many people, including the MPAA, as was previously mentioned. I haven't seen the movie. I'd like to see it. And that was very, very interesting, uh, what you had to say. Fair use is notably, you know, I mean, everybody has said sort of throughout the day, it's indeterminate. I, I have to say, in the situation of the uses you described, as I understand them in your film, I'm not at all certain what would happen if it got to court. I understand the problem that Larry and, and Jamie have made, that the problem really is, not, is less what the courts would do than what the intermediaries are doing to you and to other people in the meantime. But it's not at all clear to me that you wouldn't have won that case. Indeed, I think the single most interesting fact I heard is that ordinarily music budgets of these films, films like this are what, 10 to 15%, and in this film it turned into 50. I think with that fact, keep that documented. There should be a lawsuit one day, and you will come in as an expert witness, and you will go through that, and maybe it'll make some difference. Maybe that's not as helpful as it should be, but I think part of what I have to say is the law is not so clear. It's not at all clear. I mean, I really think, frankly, that you would win that suit. I don't know how long the, the uses are, but uh, it is a documentary. It is really what's happening. It's not music you went out to uh, fill you know, the soundtrack while something else is happening. I read through these best practices for documentary filmmakers, and there's nothing in there that I disagree with. I think they're exemplary. They are a start, and they're helpful. But if there are ideas for putting together insurance pools, which will help generally with documentaries or books or whatever, that's all to the good. Groups of lawyers who are willing to make stand-up decisions are, are useful as well. One thing that I will say, which might be instructive, and it has less, I guess, to do with documentaries, but this is as good a time as any to say it, is we miss the other side when we only talk about EMI and Universal and stuff. I'm involved in, uh, in a huge class action lawsuit brought by freelance authors who write for magazines and newspapers and stuff against databases like Sysfactiva and newspaper and magazine publishers. And it's a fight over the Tassini case development, if you know about those. And otherwise, it, it, what it really has to do with is when you write a freelance article for the New York Times Sunday Magazine or any other paper in the country or any magazine, who has the rights to use that article when it gets dumped with all of the contents of that newspaper or magazine into Lexis by Time Magazine or, or by the New York Times? And we've settled the lawsuit. Everybody's happy. Uh, but one of the interesting things that's happened in connection with the settlement is that there was a class action settlement website and people were encouraged, this was the judge's idea actually, to make any comments they wanted about the situation. And there are a series of hundreds of uh, comments by freelance authors 
you know, we're not talking about the New York Times anymore. We're talking about the guy who's getting the check. And they are getting amounts of money, it depends on what they've written, but between hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what these comments remind us of, which I think we lose track of, are the creators who are sitting around in some need. I mean, there were letters from people who, you know, I have three kids, my last kid was disabled, this is a life send to me, thank God that I'm getting some money. The amounts of money that are obnoxious to pay in one sense to EMI, EMI is paying some of those out, maybe 50% or 90%, on, it depends on the contracts, to people who are sitting around whose lives depend as creators on creating this stuff. If we just think it's about the extortionate acts of corporations, we're missing an important part of the story. And I think we need to think about the fact that there are, at the end of the trail, authors whose livelihoods, whose ability to keep in the freelance business or in the business of creating music in their backyard or upstairs in their third bedroom depends on the ability of copyright law to keep extracting a flow of money. That being said, some of the amounts of money you mentioned remind me that this is a society which is obsessed with lotteries in some sense, and everybody, corporations uh, among them, prime among them, believe in you know, their opportunity to make a killing. And when people in this society have an opportunity to fold somebody up, they do. And the right response some of the time is figure out when it's time to make a stand and say, you know, I think I have the right to do this, and I'm going to find the ACLU or the EFF or somebody to defend me and to make a new role. Thank you very much. Let me turn it over now to Pat Outerheide. Pat, who is one of the people who helped work with documentary filmmakers to put together the statement of best practices and fair use, which Mr. Sims just mentioned. Uh, she's a professor in the School of Communication at American University in DC. I believe she's gonna show us a short film and then comment on it. I would first like to show you this short film that's still in beta, describing what has to be, without any question, the most fun thing I have ever done as an academic which was to work with this group of people. Then I would like to tell you, use my last minute to tell you about the upshot of it, what, what has happened since it's been put into motion, uh, the two major consequences that I think are very important. Okay, thanks a lot, if you could roll it. What I'm so excited about today is not only who's in the room and who's a part of this, but also who will be in the room and who will be a part of this. The filmmakers have taken charge of their own destiny and created this statement. First, I just want to kiss this rocket. <laughs> I think I must have died and gone to independent filmmaker heaven. For the first time, I'll be able to say there is something that you can read. We can actually um, really take a stronger stand and defend our rights as filmmakers. Who owns our history? This is fair use. Copyright is not an absolute right, but a conditional one. In our country, under our laws and our constitution, copyright exists for one purpose and one purpose only, to promote the progress of science and useful arts. Art doesn't come from nowhere. Cultural progress depends on the ability of artists to make reasonable use of pre-existing material and that includes copyrighted material. This is especially true today for filmmakers who operate in a media-saturated environment. In order to be able to comment on that environment, in order to be able even to depict that environment, they need 
reasonable access to other people's copyrighted material. Fair use in copyright law exists to assure that that access continues to be available. People are just scared to use fair use. I know that I was scared away from using it. You know, with my first film, I Am A Man, which also uses a lot of images from popular culture, taking a look at, you know, black masculinity. You know, lawyers, you know, would scare me and say, you know, you can't, you, you know, fair, you know this, this does qualify for fair use, but I wouldn't use it if I were you. And that's really when I started to act as though fair use does not exist. Because every time I've tried to think it did, I would be, you know, surprised by some, you know, incidental piece of music in a scene that the lawyers got worried about, um, errors and emissions insurance people got concerned about, or a client got concerned about. Intimidation in the, in the clearance culture doesn't come in the form of a jackbooted thug knocking on your door. It comes in, it's, it's a way of looking at the material. It's, it's becomes a lens through which you, you look at the, all of the elements of your story. Uh, everything becomes about, can I clear the rights for this particular image before even deciding whether it's worth using in the story. When documentary filmmakers just had to guess about what was appropriate application of fair use, they were putting themselves at risk. What if they guessed wrong? What they really needed to know was what their community felt, and particularly the professional, the veterans, the people who have some experience. And what we found when we talked to members of five different filmmaker organizations across the country was that there was remarkable consensus among professional filmmakers who had two films nationally distributed about what was appropriate and reasonable application of this statute. And the result is the documentary filmmaker's statement of best practices and fair use. The best practices, statement of best practices, I think is going to be very useful because it gives filmmakers a template and a place where they can go to, to, to make sure that the work that they are creating fits under certain guidelines that are protected by fair use. And I just think that it gives film, filmmakers support. This, this is a process now of, of education of educating the insurance industries, the gatekeepers, the broadcasters, and producers. And we think that this document, uh, with that education, will become the gold standard for that perennial question which we get from filmmakers, is this fair use or do I have to license it? I mean, for me, uh, the statement of best practice is something that is reasserting our democratic values and is a way for us to preserve and you know continue to use our own cultural history. This was released on November 18th. Within two months, on January 19th, when Sundance opened, three films that went to Sundance had used this statement in order to do rights clearance for festivals, and one of them would not have been able to go to Sundance at all without that guidance, because people who held the footage were trying to withhold it. The Independent Television Service, which is part of public broadcasting, was an original endorser of the document and has agreed to use it as a guideline themselves. One of the films that went to Sundance, which is Byron Hurt's Beyond Beats and Rhymes, was scheduled to be shown on independent lens, and PBS did agree that, in principle, that they will uh, let it go to broadcast with a very, very substantial amount of fair use. A cable company has begun developing an internal fair use policy. 
a cable company was able to use this statement in order to reduce its clearance costs on one single film by $100,000 because it provided a negotiating edge. And uh, there is a producer at Discovery who was able to use this to go to his business affairs people who are not terribly friendly to this in order to make the case that clearly the material that he needed fair use in, the, in his executive produced film needed to be fair use. We have concrete evidence, all of it beginning, but real, that industry practices can change immediately upon these best practices guidelines being issued. It doesn't mean that the whole world changes because this is an incremental and educational process, but it is a huge difference from before November 18th. The other major change that has occurred after November 18th is that there are new attempts to do the same kind of thing as is going on here with different creator groups. Cambrew McLeod is working with music educators to develop a best practices statement. We were not the first people to do best practices statement, by the way, with creator groups, although I believe we were the first people to work with documentary filmmakers. And of course, the strength of the statement is not that it was done by us. What we did was to coordinate a process by which filmmakers articulated it. The College Art Association is interested in also developing a best practices model. So we are really thrilled that not only are documentary filmmakers benefiting from articulating their consensus and discovering it for themselves, but other creator groups are able to see this as valuable. Thank you. Pat. Let me ask one question, Pat. The kinds of cases that people talk about when they're discussing problems of clearance in documentary films fall into two broad categories. One is the, the accidentally captured, the, 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 the stuff that's simply there as you're filming the world. And obviously, that's something that the statement of best practices speaks to particularly clearly. It also speaks to issues of deliberate inclusion for purposes of criticism, commentary, and so forth. But the other sort of canonical example that people use is the eyes on the prize case. So there you have what happens when you have a documentary, which literally has to use hundreds, thousands uh, of fragments of material, particularly has to use a lot of music because one of the themes on Eyes of the Prize, if you, those of you who watched it, the music is a fundamental part of the movie. And in fact, the changing nature of the, the music really underscores the changing nature of the politics. That's one of the ways in which the, the film develops, but it also contextualizes the way in which the music comes back to the political struggles. As many of you probably know, Eyes on the Prize seems to have now resolved its clearance problems. I think they just paid something like in, in excess of $850,000 to clear the rights again so it can go back into circulation. It had really been removed from circulation. Now, as we, we discussed, there are uh, reasons why um, it is appropriate for people who create work to be paid, but it seems that that kind of situation is a particularly obdurate one. Do you get any sense that in those kinds of deliberate inclusions of fragments that the statement of best practices does have an effect or that you think it should have an effect? There are a number of things I want to respond to. First of all, I, I do think that it's uh, a shame that, that the people who did rights clearance on Eyes and the Prize, both the first and the second time, decided to use no fair use whatsoever. And it is truly unfortunate that both the first and the second time, none of this stuff was cleared for home video. The difference between the first and the second time that's good is that it, now it's cleared in perpetuity. The most difficult part for filmmakers of the, all of these discussions was what to do about historical footage. And what the statement reflects is what documentary filmmakers believe to be fair and reasonable. But they did wrestle mightily with what they think is appropriate, fair and reasonable, fair use in historical footage, partly because they foresee themselves as 
vendors of historical footage themselves. Two, two months after the film has been made, it becomes a historical artifact. The second thing is that they work all the time with, with footage houses, and they regard that as a completely legitimate business that's really important. They do not want to jeopardize it, and they don't want to jeopardize their relationships with any of those people either. Of the four areas that are mentioned in the statement, the fourth is absolutely the most cautious. And the general advice of documentary filmmakers to other documentary filmmakers was, in general, if you can, you should probably clear that stuff, and you should also pay for it. I was impressed with the congruence they had with the, the footage houses. The, I, I was recently on a panel with the head of, the, of one of the biggest footage houses, uh, I, ITN in Europe, and, and he said, well, this statement seems very reasonable to me. <laughs> and I imagine it is, uh, because we did deal with both rights people who were simultaneously rights holders and rights users and felt that both of those aspects of copyright law were equally important to them. You asked specifically about music issues and music that might have been caught in this historical footage. And in general, I think that's locked into the bigger question that the documentary filmmakers have, which is, I need to pay for that historical footage. There are other problems, as you know, that came up in Eyes in the Prize that continue to be bedeviling. What do you do about the protest songs where people changed the lyrics of those songs but used the tune? Do you really have to go and clear that music? Isn't that a statement in history that they were making? And I think, by and large, filmmakers would say, on the basis of our discussions with them, that, yeah, you shouldn't have to. What, what happens a lot, and I'm sure Amy can attest to this, is that even though you may be in the right and you should be able to fair use it, it may be more convenient or more socially acceptable to clear it in any case. One of the advantages we have seen in the statement already is that even when you would prefer to clear it in order to keep your good relationships with all of the people who you will need to go to again, this offers you a bargaining chip, a way to conduct a conversation in which you have something to bring to the table. Thank you. Our uh, final speaker is Professor Hugh Hansen, who teaches uh, copyright, trademark, EU, uh, intellectual property law, constitutional law at Fordham. He also is the founder and, and person who runs the annual Fordham Conference on Intellectual Property Law, which is, I guess, to intellectual property law as, as Sundance is to, uh, to, to film festivals, <laughs> or maybe can. I'm not sure which one Hugh would, would choose to pick. Hugh. Ah, thank you very much, Jamie. That's, that's the best introduction I've probably ever had. Well, one is I think this is an area, it's a quintessential paradigmatic fair use area. It seems that all this stuff is just crazy. It's sort of like, kind of like Alice in Wonderland going down the Whole and it's like a red queen telling me what the law is. And it's, it's bizarre. Because I think if it was litigated, I disagree with Chuck and us. I think everything that Amy said, that I heard, I haven't seen a documentary, just what you said, all of those would have been fair use. That's something about fair use. It's, to some extent, it's a Rorschach test. You know, it's, what do you want? I mean, there's something of we, we really want it, therefore we'll say it is a fair use or something else, or we want to have it protected or allowed, so we'll call it a parody. But I think I'm being fairly objective about here, and I think Chuck is, and I think I just don't see going through the analysis how any of those would not be a fair use. It seems like the record industry and the music industry is just messing up the situation all over the place unnecessarily. The amount of money they get from documentaries is just peanuts. We're not talking about funding starving artists or anything else. It seems to me we need two things. Either some people are going to do some litigation on behalf of, of document, or we actually maybe need a special thing congressional law with regard to documents that just 
say flat out, incidental use, blah, 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 not protected. One or the other, because it just makes no sense. And it's time wasted, effort wasted, anxiety for really no good. And I am a high protection copyright person. But to me, there's nothing to do with what copyright is about. And and it's counterproductive. However, if you litigate this, I would take things away like I want to push the limit. Get that out of your vocabulary. Judges are basically, to some degree, establishment status quo people, maybe with the present company excluded. A lot of them don't know the law. They're trying to figure a good guy, bad guy in a district court. There's no need to say you're pushing the limit in this thing. You're squarely within what should be allowed under copyright law and under very traditional. And so there's no need to, to come in with even a hint of I'm pushing the envelope or bomb thrower, which we, of course you're not. The one thing I have to say the little with, with the tape up there and uh, Peter, who is a, an expert and your colleague, the reality is that's not what copyright law is all about. Copyright law is not just to provide for incentives for the science progress of useful arts. There's a clause in the Constitution, but if you look in the entire history of copyright law, it's basically a lock-in principle of property. It's not a balancing like that. We have, if you look at all the things you have in copyright, reproduction right, derivative right, distribution right, performance right, display right. If it really were just enough incentives to get something created to have a reproduction right. What it is is a property right with an amalgam of exclusive rights like most property rights that people have and some non-exclusive. You have to look at it that way. Don't look at it as this thing, okay, we deserve this because copyright's limited and going to court, you're going to be killed. I think courts and juries think of it as a property right. This person did something, they're entitled to some sort of protection. On the other hand, like all property, you can overreach and and, uh, require too much. I was thinking last night about this type of situation and whether it's you increase, there are all sorts of possibilities you can. You can can increase the copyright fee $20, put it into a fund, have someone in the copyright office say, okay, this looks like a fair use, release that fund for that person to defend the case. You could create a federal... I know we have federal defenders in the criminal thing. Maybe we have a little money into where you have federal IP people who are out there for people who don't have money. And what you're going to have then is a fair fight. Right now, it's not a fair fight. You have the people with the money bullying the people without the money and getting away with it. And you, what you need is someone to punch them in the nose. Now, the thing like all bullies is all bullies will, will run away if you even defend yourself. Because what they don't want, even if they kill you, they don't want a bloody nose. And it's the same thing with litigation. The music industry would never push this litigation with a documentary because they're going to end up with some sort of horrible defeat and in which a really ticked-off judge is going to throw in a lot of dicta, which could hurt the music industry in other ways. So this is one of those things that it, they'll never actually carry through on it. But you need somebody on the other side to, to call the bluff. And right now, we don't have people on the other side to call the bluff, and that's actually, actually what's needed. Thank you very much. So, Hugh, I love this it's inversion. I'm going to push you a little bit on these kind of lefty pinko views of yours. I might say, well, but look, you say they don't need this stream of money. It's a tiny little stream of money. And I say, but you're ignoring the fact that that's the way that copyright works now. It's all about a hundred tiny streams of money. It's all about, well, the cell phone one is not a tiny stream of money. It's actually a very big stream of money. But it's all about collecting everywhere you can. It's all about IP management. It's all about IP being pervasive. And you could apply that argument here. Yeah, it's de 
minimis, but it's de minimis everywhere. And what's more, these documentarians, they're not the people without the money. Some documentarians are making lots of money. We've got all of these, you know, Showtime features. We've got all of these endless, you know, semi-hagiographic biographies of the rich and famous on VH1. Documentary is a booming market. It's a great area for people to make them. Now, admittedly, those don't tend to be the people on those panels, and they tend to be cases that you and I would agree. They're not fair use. It's the Elvis case, where they're taking, you know, 27 chunks of Elvis and basically just making an unlicensed video of Elvis. But that's the market, and it's hard for the content owners to look out and to say, is this one of these kind of semi-rip-off VH1? No, no insult to VH1. Is this one of these, you know, sort of just bios, which is basically just an attempt to make an unlicensed uh, a tribute, which takes everybody's uh, most famous song and everybody's most famous clip? Or is it Amy's documentary? And because they can't tell reasonably, they just charge the fee. And if the people truly can't use it, you know, it's not so much hassle. They can always edit around it, put some public domain material in it. So there's, I've done my best at providing the, uh, the defense of the practice. What do you say? Well, Jamie, I like that. That's well done. I think the fact of the matter is, though, that the music people know what they're doing. They know, they know what documentaries are, and they know especially who comes. You know, the, the word in the industry, who has money, who's got, who's got deals, who's working on things, spreads all over the place. So you come to the door, I think they know who you are, how much money you have, and what's going on, number one. Number two, what you don't want in copyright is to have people free ride on your efforts and make money for it. What they're really doing is free riding on someone's efforts to document history and make money on it. It's the exact opposite. No one's going to this movie because of that music. What they're doing is tagging on to it and trying to make money out of something of which they have nothing to do with creating that money or creating the audience for. It's the worst type of free riding. And the fact that they're negligent and don't care or they treat everyone the same, well, that, who cares? Clean up your act. They have plenty of money. I have to say it in the, some of the content providers. The arrogance is just ridiculous. The arrogance and rigidity and all, it, it's just frightening. You know, I have to rethink being high protection or I'll, I'll attract them all the time because I'm, I'm dealing with people who are just so damn unreasonable. This is the case where it's just ridiculous. It, it's just ridiculous and they would lose easily. You know what we should do? The next time you run into one of these, bring it to four, and I'll do it pro bono with my, you know, the children's brigade. And uh, the next time in the industry you find this situation, bring it over here. We'll defend it. And uh, we'll see what happens. All right? I'm going to do a, a very short... Uh, attempt at synthesizing some of the points. It seems to me Q put his finger on a set of possible solutions because I agree with him. I mean, one of the reasons why we chose to do this, this, this comic book on it is that we actually saw, it's like whenever we showed these situations to lawyers, they said, oh, that's ridiculous. That's, you know, that case is a loser from beginning to end. That shouldn't even be there. And, and there really was remarkable unanimity. Whatever people's view about copyright, and there is a difference of opinion across the bar, I thought we had remarkable unanimity. If I were to identify an area of disagreement, there were a group of people who thought that a special set of rules had formed about music, whereas I thought that a special set of basically extra legal practices had formed about music, and I didn't think that they had sound legal footing. One question is, how do the cases get brought? And the answer is, as you suggested, you know, either pro bono cases or some form of public funding. And I think those ideas are really great, I have to say. You know, I think this is something that the documentarian organizations might also want to think more about working to, to do this. You know, who is someone who we want to put this case forward? It has to be carefully chosen. There is, of course, another problem. Generally, the person you're dealing with is not that you're being sued, but rather that the errors and omissions person is saying, I'm not going to write the policy. And that's a particularly hard hurdle to jump because 
that doesn't get solved by the funding and that doesn't get solved by having someone willing to take the case, at least not by itself. I talked to foundations about this. They said, well, the answer is more funding to pay off the license. Or No, that's the worst solution, yeah, right? That yeah. simply encourages more demand. This is crazy. This is like, you know, oh, we'll pay more Dane Geld and that the Dane will go away. No, that didn't, you know, I, I know I was from that country. It didn't work out. So I think the question concretely is how do you break the private problem? Now, my, my colleagues, the law and economists say, don't worry, it doesn't exist. Because in a competitive market, you'll get lots and lots of differences of licensing practices, and there'll be risk-prone people, risk-averse people, and it will all work its way out. For a variety of reasons which it would be fun to go into, it turns out that whether or not that market exists in other areas, it doesn't seem to exist in the E&O uh, area. There are differences among the providers. I don't want to uh, go to say that there aren't, but nevertheless, there's remarkable unanimity on practices that I think most copyright lawyers would say, no, this is clearly not fair use. So I think that is an extra issue and it's one that requires some institutional thought about how to solve it, because it's actually quite a naughty one if the industry practice is resistant to the kinds of initiatives which we've heard about today, and perhaps it won't be. Perhaps there will be pressure from Pat and others. So now let, I'm Let me to, just yeah. address the, the insurance issue particularly, because the insurers are the worst. They're, of all the gatekeepers, they're the worst for, for documentary filmmakers. And gatekeepers here are the issue. Filmmakers don't get to decide on their own because they all go to, go to broadcast. And immediately after this thing came out, we did see significant change in behavior of the cable programmers and the broadcasters. What we're still waiting for, we, are, uh, we actually, Professor Yassi has been having conversations with some of the ENO people thanks to the filmmakers' context that we have. And one of the things that's interesting about that market is that it's basically a commodity market. They're all offering the same product. And one of the areas of interest on the part of at least one of those companies is to be able to offer a differentiated product. Now, it may turn out that this year that doesn't happen. But what I really think is important is that conversation has been initiated. And the education has begun. And the education is not about you should do the right thing. It's about, guess what? You could make money and, and, and get a different market. Well, unfortunately, uh, as we said, uh, we don't get that much in the federal courts, testing what is a fair use in, in a documentary context. But my view is, and I, th I, think, I think probably the view that would, would prevail, is that context matters a great deal. And if you are working in a documentary, fair use will be read much more broadly than for, uh, for things that are not documentary as fiction. But you have to figure out the threshold question of what is a documentary. Amy's movie, I've seen it, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a documentary, but we heard about Elvis. Professor Ball uh, mentioned Elvis. That was a case, again, from the Ninth Circuit, and uh, in fact, I have it in my office. It's a series of eight tapes, uh, videotapes, and uh, there's a bunch of Elvis clips, most of which were in the public domain or cleared, but there were a few that were not, and on the basis of just a few minutes of film out of eight or 10 or 12 hours of film, this thing wasn't joined, it was gone. And part of it was, it wasn't viewed as a documentary, it was viewed as a commercial venture. And you heard the dismissive comment, what was the dismissive comment? Oh, this was Elvis, they just put together a bunch of clips. Well, why isn't that a documentary? You put together a bunch of Elvis clips, you know, there's no fiction involved there, it's life of Elvis, but somehow we don't get the feeling that that's a documentary, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of show the documentary work 
part of the, the creativity of documentary. On the other hand, if you have too much creativity, it might not be a documentary either. I mean, most of what Michael Moore does is, is, is fiction, all of it. Um, the supersize uh, advocacy piece, I doubt that that would have been viewed as a documentary, as, as a legal matter. I, mean, I don't know, but at least it would not have been a slam dunk as a, as a documentary. So that's something you have to keep in mind, and that's framing of the issue. What are you really doing? Is this, is this thing really documentary? Or is it not? And, and that's partly what you get lawyers for, to advocate. You can take any of these films and argue, yes, they're documentaries, and you can argue on the other side, uh, many of them that no, no, even though they are non-fiction, uh, they are not. And that's something you need to keep in mind. The second point is, we've talked about levels of clearance that you have to get. What tipped up Elvis was not... Uh, whoever, uh, the Elvis estate, or whoever has the, the copyright, it was Ed Sullivan. No problem with the Elvis people. Ed Sullivan. Uh-huh. A lot of stuff. And, and the question is, how do you, if you're doing the life of Elvis, leave out Ed Sullivan? I mean, you can, you can do the film, but it's not the same. I mean, you have to show Elvis appearing in Ed Sullivan. I, I must say, I was not happy with that decision. It wasn't, I was not on the panel, but it becomes a real issue. If the thing is viewed as a documentary, and I guess maybe this for some reason was viewed as some sort of commercial hack job, you have elements that you have to include that often involve the rights of other people. Which brings me to the final point, which applies not only to documentary, but to everything else. Uh, you've heard about trademark rights. I mean, of course, we've been talking copyright all this time. We talked about trademark rights. But there, is, there are other rights. There's a right to publicity involves, uh, quite aside from, uh, from the fiction ones, involves the personality of the people involved. The, the two big cases of our circuit are Havana White. Uh, this, uh, the one involved uh, uh, a, a Samsung ad where they had a mannequin that looked sort of like the robot in the future standing next to a, a Game Boy. They said the, the, the gag was uh, in the future when Vanna will long be gone, Vanna would be replaced by a robot. Uh, Samsung products would still be going strong. Well, nobody thought this was Vanna White. Obviously, the whole gag was this Vanna White had been replaced by a mannequin. But nevertheless, she sued and she got uh, $400,000 over that. Far worse, I thought, was the Cheers case uh, involving uh, this case by the name of Wendt. And that was the case where they actually got licenses from the Cheers people to set up bars in various airports with, uh, with a Cheers theme. So, you know, they could use the posters and uh, so on. They got the copyright, the rights from the people who produced Cheers. In the corner, on the bar, they had a couple of dummies, literally animatronic figures, that sort of moved a little bit. I actually went and checked this out. They had one of these bars in... Uh, Kansas City, I believe, and I ran to that end of the airport just to see what they looked like. So one of them was not dressed in a postman's uniform. Um, you couldn't, if you so particularly looked at them, recognize uh, no Norman Cliff. I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm not a, uh, anyway, uh, I co- I couldn't recognize Norman Cliff. But what they were is they were sitting at the end of the bar, making uh, sort of inarticulate sounds. <laughs> So if you know this is a Cheers bar, right, who are those characters? Well, of course, they are Norman Cliff. The lawsuit was brought not by Cheers, obviously, because they had given the copyright. It was brought by the two actors, Ratzenberg and Wendt, who played the character, and said even though they got the copyright licenses, 
these people wanted to be paid for the fact that they were the ones sitting there in the bar, you know. So that's another area of rights that one has to think about in clearances. And the difficulty with this is that it varies from state to state. That's a state right, unlike trademark, copyright, patent, so on, which, are, which, are, which are national rights. So it's, it's still a dangerous world down there. In some ways, getting to be a much more dangerous world. But again, if you do like Amy, and if you manage to do a fine documentary and you can persuade people that there really is a documentary, you're going to be much better off. And the reason I think she hasn't got any, any, any trouble is because uh, nobody wants to take on a documentary. Okay. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.